Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. Let's turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written in the spring of 57 A.D. At the time he wrote this to the people who lived in Rome, Paul was staying at Corinth, ministering to the people there. He was visiting the Corinthians for about three months. And he wrote this letter because he wanted to introduce himself to the Roman community. He wanted to, in other words, let his reputation precede him in hopes that someday he would actually be able to be there with them. This book is a good overview of the Christian faith. It's a good overview of what grace is because he's using it to teach them And this is how he's introducing himself. He's letting them know a wide understanding, a deep understanding of the Christian faith so that by the time he gets to Rome, the people there will have learned from his epistle, his letter, and will be saying, gee, Paul taught us so much in that little letter, I can't wait to go to his seminar and hear him in person. Of course, they have to go visit him in prison by the time he gets to Rome. A lot of what's in here is a real description of grace. For years, I wondered, what does grace mean? What is grace? And I see by your faces that you have wondered the same question. Well, here's a catchy little anagram to help you remember what grace means. It's the gift received at Christ's expense. Meditate on that for a while. Look at chapter 1 in in Romans, verse 5. Through him we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Through Jesus we have received the grace of apostleship. We have received the gift at the expense of Jesus and what he did on the cross. We have the gift of being able to be an apostle of being empowered to be an apostle. And what is an apostle? One who is sent. Who in here is an apostle? Raise your hand. That's right. You just took ownership by raising your hand. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be an apostle just like the people in the book of Acts who were called apostles. The bishops, 2,500 of them during Vatican Council II, wrote a whole epistle a letter to us laity saying that we are apostles. It's called the decree on the apostolate of the laity. All the bishops in the world, when Vatican Council II was taking place, wrote a letter to you personally, to each of us laity, saying, you are an apostle. Here's how to live out that apostleship or that apostolate. To continue with what Paul is saying here, we have this apostolate, this grace of apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. If we are not obedient to what Jesus tells us, if we are not obedient to the will of God and what our part of the covenant relationship is, then we are ineffective Christians. We are not filled with faith. We are not living in faith. We're no different than the world. We're not holy. We're not set apart. It continues and says, for the sake of his name. Remember what I said earlier in the week about what name means? It's not for the sake of J-E-S-U-S, those letters. 
It's for the sake of Jesus Christ and everything that he is, his whole personality, all of his gifts, all of his power from the Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit. That's what it means by the name, for the sake of his name. Now, in the early church, some would be part of one community and move or travel and take it with them and start up another community elsewhere. Disciples were spreading it. Apostles, apostles with a capital A, the apostles, were spreading it. And many of these early evangelists, these early Christians who were teaching others about the faith, they'd go traveling around, they'd start a community here, and once they were started, they'd say, okay, now keep praying and studying the Old Testament, that's all they had. It was 400 years before the New Testament was put together, the Bible as we now have it. 400 years. Once the letters began to get written, they began to get copied and circulated and read before the congregations. But it was not the Bible yet. For those 400 years, it was by word of mouth. As these early evangelists would travel around setting up these little communities and then move on to the next one and to the next one to the next one, a natural consequence of this was this little community who got started and then the person starting it left, they would try their best to grow in their understanding of the faith and to grow in understanding how to live it out and everything. And sometimes errors would creep in. Sometimes outside influences would creep in. A lot of the letters that Paul wrote were to respond to these communities that had gotten started and he got reports about that there was some error creeping in. So a lot of the text of these letters are an answer to the heresies that were starting, to the misconceptions that were growing. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. Grace is that righteousness of God coming into our lives and making a difference in our lives. Romans 8. If you want to read just one chapter to get a feeling of what the core message is of the book of Romans, read chapter 8. It's the heart of the letter. And basically, to put into three sentences what that chapter is about, and by the way, one of my favorite scriptures, probably many of you have the same one as a favorite, Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Everything is for good. It doesn't have to be. But it takes having that relationship with God and turning the situation over to him, giving him permission to make a difference that makes everything turn to good. Absolutely everything. The heart of Romans chapter 8 can be summed up this way. It's a description of three parts to salvation. Three aspects, three necessary parts in order to be saved. You ever have a Protestant come up to you and say, Are you saved? When were you saved? If someone says to you, when were you saved? Give me some answer. Baptism. When Christ died on the cross. Anybody else have anything else? When you accepted Jesus. Well, Paul says there's a little more to it than that. There's three parts to salvation. The first one is called initiation. It's what we call now initiation. And it means, I am saved by the blood of Jesus. I am saved. I have been saved. Saved by the blood of Jesus. Someone gave the answer, you know, for what Jesus did on the cross. That's when salvation took place. I am saved. But that's only one part of it. Part two is sanctification. I am being saved every day. 
My favorite answer to the Protestant question is, when were you saved? Oh, yesterday, the day before, the day before that, today, tomorrow I'll be saved some more. If we stop entering into the process of being saved, we've lost our previous salvation. We have to keep growing in sanctification. Either we're alive in it and growing, or we're dead in it. And then the third part of salvation is, I will be saved on the last day, the second coming of Christ. That's when we receive our glorified bodies. And everything that took place from the original sin in the Garden of Eden that corrupted our bodies and corrupted nature in the world, all of that is undone and it's back to the way things were with plan A of God before sin entered the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world. The new heaven, the new earth that the book of Revelation talks about. We receive our glorified bodies and we enter into, we live in the glorified world. Bodies who have been taken in the world that have been taken so much over by God, so totally, so completely, that we've entered into his glory. That's why it's called a glorified body. It's not that we're getting glory, it's just that we're in God's glory completely. Okay, let's move on to Corinthians. The Corinthians had errors creeping into their community that Paul needed to address. But the Corinthians were also experiencing persecution. And they were wondering whether this suffering was worth it. So Paul spends a lot of time in 1st and 2nd Corinthians addressing suffering. This is one of those books that's fantastic to read when you're suffering. Look at, let's skip to 2nd Corinthians. We'll get back to 1st Corinthians in a minute. 2nd Corinthians, chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, God of all encouragement. God of all encouragement. The Corinthians needed encouragement. We need encouragement. Who encourages us in our every affliction, so that we may be able to encourage others, encourage those who are in any affliction with the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged. Boy, how many times did that word encourage show up? Get the point? For as Christ's sufferings, verse 5, overflow to us, his sufferings did not end when he died on Good Friday. Because we are now his body, and as his body, we are suffering. And his sufferings overflow. Why? Well, why did Jesus suffer on Good Friday? For our sins, for redemption, the sake of redemption. So why does his body suffer now? From God's point of view now. From the human point of view, or let's say even from the demonic point of view. There's a lot of suffering we go through that we're not supposed to be in, just like when those Israelites in the Old Testament kept turning away from God and forgetting to rely on God for help, and they got into some suffering that God had tried to warn them about so that it could be prevented. Not all of our suffering is what God wants us to suffer, and if we'd only turn to him and do things his way, we'll get out of that suffering. But there's a lot of suffering that we go through that can be and should be part of redemption, ongoing redemption. When we're in relationship with somebody who's giving us a hard time, that kind of suffering, if we offer it up for redemption, if we do things the way Jesus tells us to do, pray for those who treat us badly, that becomes a redemptive act for that person. When someone is asking for more stuff from us, Jesus says, give to everyone who asks. When we do that, 
our suffering becomes redemptive for that person. When we do good to those who hate us, that good deed becomes redemptive for them. What's redemption? What does redemption do? What did redemption that Jesus did on the cross do for us? Set us free from our sins. So going back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is. Love is not. Look at just verses 4 through 7 right now. What's the definition of love? Who is love? God. So let's read this in terms of every time the word says love, let's read it as God. God is patient. God is kind. God is not jealous. God is not pompous. God is not inflated. God is not rude. God does not seek his own interests. God is not quick-tempered. God does not brood over injury. God does not rejoice over wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anytime we question whether God really loves us or whether God is an angry God or whatever, when we feel like we don't really know who God is, read that. Now, whose image are we made in? God's. So that's a description of us, too. Oh, good. Ralph left the room. I can say this, and he won't contradict me. (laughs) Terry is patient. Terry is kind. (laughs) If you want to do a real good examination of conscience before going to confession, read this scripture with your name in place of the word love. And every time you read part of a sentence, Terry is patient. Uh, Oh... Terry is kind. Oh, yeah, I remember that unkind comment I made to the kid the other day. Terry is not jealous. Well, I did get jealous of the amount of time Ralph spent at the computer the other day. You can go through a real good examination of conscience. Now, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is all about the spiritual gifts that we get from living in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts but the same Spirit. Different forms of service, but the same Lord. Verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the expression of wisdom. Anybody here need more wisdom than what you got? Expression of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. We have as much faith as the Holy Spirit has because it's a gift. It's not something we work at to build up. We've already got it from our baptism. We need to work on trust. But faith we've got in its fullness. Gifts of healing, mighty deeds, etc. The reason why this is right before chapter 13 is because we need these gifts in order to do chapter 13. God gives us everything we need when he asks us to do something. So if we rely on these gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are verses 4 through 11, then with the use of those gifts... We can be patient. We can be kind, even when it's difficult. We grow in wisdom, the wisdom that teaches us, that explains to us, that helps us understand why doing good to those who hate us can be a redemptive act. We need the knowledge, a gift from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we need supernatural knowledge because head knowledge isn't enough. Book learning knowledge isn't enough. World knowledge is certainly not enough and can mislead us. So we need God's knowledge on how to do good to those who hate you. We need to know what specific action will work the best with this person who's giving us a difficult time. We need to know the timing of the action. 
Sometimes we have to wait in separation from a person who's difficult to be in relationship with. We need a time for God to work in that person before God says, okay, now go and reach out and do something. That knowledge of the timing comes from the Holy Spirit. On our own, we either do it too soon or wait way too long. So chapter 12 prepares us to do chapter 13. And then chapter 14 reinforces chapter 12 to show us how to use these gifts and how to use them rightly. So this love chapter is sandwiched in between gift chapters. That's the key to living out the Christian message, the gospel message, to being Jesus in the world. Okay, let's move to Galatians. To give a a little synopsis, a little taste of what Galatians is all about, let's go to chapter 2 of Galatians. Remember I mentioned the book of Acts talked about that first council, the council of Jerusalem? Chapter 2 of Galatians is all about that council also. Go to chapter 5, verse 6. One of the key points of Galatians is that the only thing that really counts in life is faith working through love. So in verse 6 we see, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, it doesn't matter about their outside rituals. It doesn't matter whether you kneel at the right place in church or not. What really matters is where your heart is when you kneel or don't kneel. For in Christ Jesus, no ritual counts for anything. No outside action counts for anything. But only faith working through love. Faith without love is dead. It's not faith. But when we live that way, we suffer. Because that's the Sermon on the Mount. We're living the Sermon on the Mount then, and we suffer. Our flesh nature does not like to give to everyone who asks. And our flesh suffers and cries out in pain. Let's go to verse 22 talking about the fruit of the Spirit. In Corinthians, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit. Now we're talking about the fruit that comes out of living in those gifts. And notice it says, the fruit, singular. It's one fruit because it's one Spirit. But there are many flavors to that fruit. And here's what this fruit tastes like. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we are lacking any of this, that's the degree to which we're lacking the Holy Spirit. He's there in his fullness, but we're just not tapped into it or tuned into it. Let's move to Ephesians. Paul is writing to the community at Ephesus while in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. And this letter is actually not written just to the Ephesians. It's written to all the communities throughout Asia. Ephesus was the first stopping place for this letter, the first place it was read to the community. The theme of Ephesians is that believers have a glorious place in God's eternal purposes. We're part of an awesome plan. God has a plan for each of us. We're in the middle of a plan, whether we realize it or not. And God is inviting us into the fullness of the plan. And it's a glorious plan. And it has to do with God's eternal purposes, not just for our life right now. It has to do with the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. The book of Ephesians is a call 
to live out this identity as a true Christian, as a true apostle. Chapters 1 through 3 describe who we are as Christians, who we are as church. The rest of the chapters, 4 through 6, is about how to live as church. The first is who, the second section is how. One of my favorite verses in there is chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. In other words, those difficult people, God created them in his image too. Not just us. He created them that way. He created them good. Remember in Genesis, God looked at what he created and said, this is good. We need to remember that those people are good. And we need to look at these difficult people and recognize that they are good. They're just heaped on with a lot of garbage that hides that goodness. Garbage piled on them when they were abused as children. Garbage piled on them when they were taught the wrong things. Garbage piled on them when they were picked on. Lots of garbage. Garbage piled on them when they made the wrong choices. We need to look at them as they really are because, as chapter 6, verse 12 says, our struggle is really not with the flesh and blood person, but with the principalities and powers of darkness. The principalities, powers, and the world rulers of this present darkness with this evil spirit in the heavens. It's because evil exists. It's because demons exist that those people are so difficult. It's because we are living in a world that still has those demons present that makes them difficult to be with. And if we can look past the demonic, the evil, we can see the good in them. But we need the supernatural grace of the Holy Spirit to be able to look past their garbage. And when we do make that attempt and ask for God's help to look past their garbage, it becomes a lot easier to live the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot easier to do good to those who hate you because we realize it's Satan that really hates us. That person is just blinded by that hatred of Satan. And that person has been confused, so he doesn't know how to love us, doesn't know how to treat us because somewhere in there is God who created him good and he desperately wants to love us. God wants to love us through that person, and that person wants to love us and be a loving person. They just don't know how. Everybody is good. A lot of people just have bad garbage piled on top of them, and we confront the garbage. We come up against the garbage. Philippians. This is a book of joy. Paul is also writing this from Rome under house arrest. The Philippians were a good Christian community who was so alive in the Lord that in their enthusiasm, they wanted to help the preachers financially any way that they could. And the easiest way that they could when all these preachers such as Paul were traveling around was to help them financially. Paul supported himself as a tent maker throughout his life. But a lot of the times he didn't have time to make very many tents because he was so busy preaching. I mean, heck, one time Paul was preaching for so long people crammed into this house, this living room, to hear him preach. They ran out of room on the floor to sit and on the couches and everything else. So somebody was sitting on the windowsill, and Paul was preaching all day long. Somebody got tired, like you all are feeling about this time of the week, and fell asleep and fell out of the window, knocked his head, broke his neck, and died. And Paul says, whoops, and he goes outside prays over the guy. The guy comes back to life. He says, okay, let's get on with the seminar. (laughs) Paul did not have much time to make tents. 
but he never wanted to be a burden upon the people he was preaching to. He wanted to go to anybody. And that's the same principle that we base Good News Ministries on. We don't want anybody to not come to our seminars on account of they can't afford it. We don't want a price tag to prevent anybody from coming, just like Paul. Paul said, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And as a result of that, sometimes he got good donations from the congregation he was with. Sometimes he didn't. And when he was in prison, in house arrest in Rome, he didn't have as many opportunities to have speaking engagements and collect donations. So he needed to rely on the generosity and the love and the initiative of the people he had already touched. And the Philippians were that kind of people. They sent money to Rome from Philippi to support Paul with. Because even though he was arrested, he still had to buy his own food. He still had to pay for his own cost of living. He had to pay for the papyrus that he wrote his letters on. Because Paul had just gotten this generous donation from the Philippians, he wrote this letter. The theme of the letter is, when you've got difficult situations, respond in a way that befits a servant of Christ. Respond in joy. Because we can have joy in any kind of difficulty when we know that we're walking through it with God. That's the message of Philippians. Keep in mind that we're always walking with God. And in that intimate relationship, walking next to Him, walking beside Him, walking with Him through anything, we can focus on Him instead of the problem. And that's our source of joy. Turn now to Colossians. Coloss, spelled like Colossians, except take off the I-A-N-S and put an E on. Coloss was a small city in Asia. It was a city. It was bigger than those other villages he stopped at, but it was small as far as cities go. When the Christian community had first been set up, the people responded to it enthusiastically. The truth flourished there. The community grew. But some of the surrounding pagan ideas began to infiltrate. Some of the members of the community brought in some outside ideas. Some people were teaching some wrong ideas in the community. So Paul wrote this letter in answer to those errors to teach the Colossians how to identify truth, to help them know what the truth was. For example, turn to chapter 3, verse 18. Family relationships. What's the truth about how to live in family relationship? Wives, be subordinate to your husbands as is proper in the Lord. Now, I can say this as a wife without getting killed. If Ralph were up here saying it, you might be throwing rocks at him, you wives. But, now see, this is kind of a repeat of what Paul has said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives and avoid any bitterness toward them. It's a mutual relationship. A wife being subordinate does not mean she's inferior. Another way of putting it is, husband, if you're loving your wife, you're being submissive and humble to her. And if a husband is doing that, it's really easy to be submissive to him, isn't it, gals? Chapter 3 through 4 is basically advice on how to get through problems by keeping our eyes on Jesus so that everything else that we would have been looking at otherwise, that we put to death. And we live by looking only at Jesus. And that's how we get through problems. See, there's a lot of good stuff in here for everyday life. 
Then we get to Thessalonians, which we've already touched on. Next comes Timothy, and he wrote two letters to Timothy. Before Paul was arrested, Timothy was a friend of his, someone who he ministered with, that he sent to Ephesus to handle some problems that occurred in that community. Paul is writing him a letter to encourage him in that work of dealing with those Ephesians. The theme is, while you're amongst those troublesome Ephesians, silence those leaders of the group who are teaching falsehoods. Then put qualified people in those leadership roles. And he also describes what makes up a good Christian community, what the role is of the Christian community, so that Timothy can help form this group of people into a true Christian community. Later on, when Paul's about to die and he knows it, he writes another letter to Timothy. Moving on to 2 Timothy now. He writes another letter because he knows it's time to pass on his wisdom, his ministry, to the next generation. His generation of apostles is dying off, so he wants to pass on the ministry to the next generation. And Timothy is kind of like you would call him his son in ministry. He has raised him up, trained him how to be an apostle. So Paul writes this letter with the theme of make sure your generation understands the gospel and lives the gospel accurately and completely. It's an exhortation to Timothy. Do your job. Do your job well to make sure the next generation of Christians keeps going in the right direction. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, Come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.